Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Praise the Lord, everybody. We're going to dive right into the Word of the Lord. We've just prayed, so you can be seated. Amen. A little bit different tonight, but that's okay. We're still going to study the Word of the Lord and see what the Lord would say in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. Tonight we are in our 21st uh, lesson. If we could get the PowerPoint rolling, it's coming. All right, 21st lesson of the book of Revelation. We're moving right along. I was talking to someone today and uh, we just can't believe that we're already halfway through the book of Revelation. I mentioned a couple of times right at the outset are we okay, Brother Matthew? It, it's already on the computer. I downloaded it on there. Okay. Praise the Lord. If y'all saw the look of the sound man, he was like, bless God. I know what I'm doing. Amen. And I know that he does. And so I have to just trust him. Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. I was talking, uh, we, I mentioned it um, at the beginning of our study of Revelation, the average time that it takes to teach through the book of Revelation. And I say the average time, I was just basing that off of a, of a few uh, teachers of the Word of God that teach verse by verse through the Bible. And it took them over two years to study the book of Revelation, but we're on pace to knock it out in uh, a few months. It, it may take us longer than that, but it's all good. Amen? Revelation 11, 15 through 19 is what we're studying tonight. Is is it is it connecting? We're ha- we're having all kinds of issues. That's okay. Amen. It's storming tonight in the middle of November. I don't know much about technology, Brother Matthew, but it, it actually has a signal here that is suggesting that it's not connected for some reason. Maybe if we pull the USB out and pop it back in. I received my second look from the sound man tonight that says, trust me, he'll get it together. Praise the Lord. We will, I'm just going to go ahead and, and start teaching and then he'll let me know whenever this gets connected. It got connected. Praise God. All right. By way of review. Amen. Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. We were introduced to the two witnesses. Uh, we talked about um, the different possibilities of who these two witnesses are. Lots of people love to speculate. 
um, the, probably the most popular, maybe the majority uh, position would be that it's Moses and Elijah um, due to the uh, characteristics that are named in the first part of chapter 11 there. Um, others would say, no, it's not them. It's actually Elijah and Enoch because they're the only two that didn't see death. Um, we talked about, though, how uh, it wouldn't necessarily fit Enoch because Enoch uh, was promised that he wouldn't see death. So I think that we can, uh, we can kind of throw that one away. Um, the other thought is that it's men from that generation. And if I have to be forced to take a position, I don't really want to uh, because I just trust the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord did not reveal their names to us. So I just say that uh, we don't know and we won't know until we get to heaven. But if somebody was to nail me down and ask me for, for a position, I would say that most likely it's going to be men that arise from that generation. My reason for that, I have various reasons. One of the strongest is that we have no uh, precedent for anyone after that length of time rising from the dead and being restored a full flesh and blood body. Uh, everyone that has risen from the dead in the past, it's been relatively close to their death. Uh, you say, well, Moses and Elijah both appeared beside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, but they were in glorified bodies. They were not in full flesh and blood bodies. So we have no precedent in the Word of God for that. And so that causes me to assume that there are going to be men that actually God arises and anoints for the moment uh, during that time. So uh, whomever they are, the two witnesses are raised up by God. They preach for three and a half years. Uh, after three and a half years, they are killed by the Antichrist. Their mission's accomplished. Uh, God takes his hand of protection off of them. The Antichrist is able to kill them. We talked about last week how they leave their bodies literally uh, on the ground for the world to see, and they mock and celebrate over these bodies for three days. After three days, we read that they were resurrected and then they were raptured right there for everyone uh, to see. And then there was a great earthquake and uh, at least 7,000 men uh, are killed when that happens. After that takes place, then, and I'm just summarizing what we talked about last week, uh, then an angel says that two woes are past and the third is coming quickly. So, in other words, uh, we haven't seen the worst yet, the angel is proclaiming um, to the people. Tonight, we're going to look at the seventh trumpet, and this is a fascinating conversation, uh, and I'm going to tackle a little bit of it right here at the outset when we talk about the. There's a lot of discussion and speculation as to which trumpet is the last trumpet, how many trumpets are there, uh, etc. A lot of people actually confuse the last trumpet of First Corinthians 15. Paul says that at the last trumpet, uh, he says we're all all going to sleep, but in the blink of an eye. We're going to be like him. Um, and so that's 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul calls that the last trumpet. And so people say, uh, they read the book of Revelation. Revelation talks about seven trumpets, and they say, well, the seventh trumpet, that has to be the last trumpet. Even though the last trumpet, it's, nev it's never mentioned in the book of Revelation, uh, doesn't actually say the last trumpet. We're going to talk tonight about two different d differences 
uh, several differences rather, between the two uh, scriptures. So you've got in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, um, the subject is the church, the church being raptured away at the last trump. Uh, in Revelation 11, the subject is a wicked world. So when the trumpet is blown, the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, God is pouring out his wrath upon the world. Uh, the result in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the catching up or the rapture of the church when that trumpet is blown. The result in Revelation 11, what we're studying tonight, is the judgment of the world. So again, it's kind of hard to conflate the two. Uh, there was the character of... Uh, the trumpet in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, is the trumpet of God's grace. So in other words, it's a, it's a show of God's grace and his mercy that he actually keeps his church, that he raptures his church uh, before the great tribulation. The character of the trumpet in Revelation 11 is God's judgment again. It's a trumpet of judgment. So instead of joy when that seventh tr uh, trumpet is blown, there's actually, we're, we'll, as we'll see tonight, there's actually anger in the world at it. It's a, it's a trumpet of God's judgment. Again, the timing, 1 Corinthians 15, that trumpet, which Paul calls the last trumpet, signals the end of the church dispensation. So it's very possible that that's what Paul meant whenever he says the last trumpet. Interestingly enough, when 1 Corinthians is written, uh, around AD 50, um, that's actually around 40 years before uh, the Apostle John actually gets his revelation uh, and writes his book of Revelation. So a 40 years, so, so actually Paul came up with the term the last trumpet before the book of Revelation existed. So it's possible John is referring to what Paul talks about as the last revelation, or the last trumpet rather, but it's unlikely. And it's unlikely because he could have just ended all speculation and just used that phrase along, somewhere along in his uh, writing here with the seventh trumpet. He could have called it the last trumpet and that would have ended all speculation, but he didn't do it. The timing of, of the trumpet in Revelation 11 marks the climax or the high point of the tribulation judgments. So I wanted to, to do that right up front uh, to give you all kind of, and I wish I had... Uh, been able to give you a printout of that, but I wanted to discuss the different trumpets because that's a big uh, discrepancy, a big arguing point among the two uh, dominant positions of pre-trib and post-trib. You have to figure out uh, what Paul meant by the last trumpet and whether or not that correlates with the trumpet here in Revelation 11. I don't think it does. I think they're two uh, separate events. So let's dive into the word of the Lord, shall we? Verse 15 of Revelation 11 reads this, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what do we have happening here? We have the trumpet uh, the seventh trumpet sounds, and unlike uh, what has happened previously when a trumpet sounds, John doesn't hear a voice or see a, an angel. He hears many voices. He hears a multitude of voices. 
uh, and they're all saying the same thing. They're all doing the same thing, and that is giving praise and glory to the Lord. And actually, they're saying this, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. I love this. What's happening here? With the seventh trumpet, Jesus is taking his rightful place as Lord, as King. He's announcing it for the world to see. This is the beginning of his second coming. And uh, he's claiming literally every kingdom of the world as his own. Every kingdom. I was thinking today as I read this, the kingdoms of the world. If you study history, and I love history, there are so many nations. In fact, there were so many. I was going to actually put up a list for us, but there's so many that I couldn't possibly list them all. Uh, it would take too much time to list all of the nations that have arisen in the history of the world that no longer exist, that have risen and fallen, kingdoms that have risen and fallen. We think in our own time right now, uh, the, the, the different kingdoms that have risen and fallen. You have kingdoms uh, in the Middle East. Uh, a few years ago, um, ISIS was a big thing. It was taking over the Middle East. Now you don't hardly hear of that. Nations rise and nations fall. America actually has only been around a short while. And uh, I was talking to a friend today. We don't know how long America is going to last. But if the history of the world is, is any evidence, it may not last long. You look at the Roman Empire. Some people believed uh, that that empire would, it would be an everlasting empire. It would last forever. And it didn't. It ended up falling. The empires of the Greeks, uh, the Persians, the Assyrians, the empire of Egypt, all of those empires in the history of the world have eventually fallen. Literally every kingdom, except this kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is going to enact, it's his kingdom. His kingdom is going to last forever. His kingdom is a kingdom that there will be no rival to. No one can bring it down. When he decides to set up a kingdom, that's it. You look at our, you look at the political situation of our world right now. Our world, uh, is in chaos. We don't know right now. We've got forces in our world. You've got Russia that are making moves. You've got China that is building up right now. It's, it's nuclear arsenal. Uh, our world is extremely, uh, chaotic because of the kingdoms that are at work in this, in this world. And what's fascinating is it says the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. That uh, strongly implies that right now the kingdoms of this world are, are outside of, now we're not talking about outside of his ultimate control, right? We're talking about delegated authority. But it would be under someone else's authority. It would imply that it, it, the kingdoms of the world, and especially then, are going to be under the control of Satan. And so it's, it's interesting, whenever you read the news, and it's important that you don't over-spiritualize everything, but it's also important to understand that, that things that are happening in our world are not always just natural influences and natural impulses that are at work. There's a spiritual uh, underlining behind events that take place. There are kingdoms of this world that are under the control of Satan, but one day, According to John, Jesus at the sounding of this seventh trumpet is going to step on the scene and he's actually going to take all the kingdoms of the world and make them his kingdom. 
Jesus at his second coming, at his second coming will claim authority over every kingdom. They will all be under his authority. This was prophesied in Isaiah 27, 13. He said, and it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. It was also prophesied in Daniel 2 and 44 and it reads like this. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. There's no kingdom in this world, there's no power in this world that's going to be able to stand against that that great kingdom, that wonderful kingdom that Jesus himself is going to set up. And we have to ask then, how long will his reign last? His reign will last forever. Literally, the the saying here in Revelation uh, 11 and 15 is, it's ages and ages. It's forever and ever. It's eternity to eternity. It never ends. And you say, well, the Bible talks about a thousand year reign. Yes, and I believe it's all, it's all encompassing. There's a thousand year reign. And then at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be one more rebellion, which Christ, uh, Christ is going to squash. Um, and at the end of that, he's going to reign forever, but his reign never ends. That rebellion never succeeds. Jesus throws down that rebellion, and then he continues to reign forever and ever according to John. And this is encouraging for us believers because there is a future hope. We look at Revelation eleven sixteen through 18. And the four and 20 elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants and the prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroyeth the earth. So here we have the 24 elders, 24 elders falling on their face, worshiping King Jesus. I believe this is the seventh time that the 24 elders are mentioned in uh, the book of Revelation. And here they are, they're worshiping the Lord. And you have to ask, why are they worshiping? Why have they all of a sudden, at the sounding of this trumpet, decide to fall over and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? That's exactly why. Because Jesus has become King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're worshiping because every Old Testament prophecy and every New Testament prophecy regarding the coming kingdom has been fulfilled. Right at that moment, the sounding of the trumpet, Jesus steps forward to create and establish his kingdom on the earth. The prophets in Daniel, the prophet in Ezekiel, 
uh, all of those prophets in the Old Testament that prophesied about the coming kingdom, they're all vindicated at the sounding of this seventh trumpet as Jesus steps on the scene and begins to reign. And I love the language here. It says that he's taken his power and he uses it to reign. I love the, I love the image here. Jesus taking by force what is rightfully his. He's taking it by force. This is not a willful submission to the, to King Jesus. This isn't the enemy deciding to finally lay down and give up and roll over and hand over the kingdoms of this world to King Jesus. No, they worship him because Jesus, by the, by his, uh, by, by all of his power, decides to reign. He takes back what is rightfully his by force. He goes to war and he wins. And we know that the devil is not the equal and opposite of God. He could never win this battle. And Jesus proves it by stepping on the scene and taking what was rightfully his. Did Satan try? Yes, Satan tried. Satan tries and we're going to, we're getting ready as we look at uh, chapters 12 through chapter 19. We're going to see the work of Satan and the attempt of Satan to hold the world in his grasp, to keep his reign on earth. But Jesus shows us that he is not going to allow this. Satan's attempt will ultimately fail because the kingdom is Christ and because he took it by his power. I love that image. It's, it's literally taking it by force. Jesus doesn't walk in and ask permission. Jesus doesn't walk in and, and ask them to wave the white flag. He walks in with the power of his might, the power that he's earned. He's been exalted higher than ever before because of his death on the cross is what the Bible teaches us. And he takes that power, what is rightfully his, from Satan, the, the title deed to the earth. And as Jesus begins to rule, we see here in, uh, in chapter 11, the last half of chapter 11, something happens. The anger of the world clashes with the wrath of God. This is a fascinating picture in the word of God. What, what are we seeing here? As Jesus steps on the scene, his second coming to take back what is rightfully his, the world looks at Jesus and they are so hardened in their heart. They're so set in their evil ways that they look at the truth of who Jesus is. Now, these people have been mocking Christians. They've been making fun of Christians. They have alienated and persecuted Christians. They refuse to acknowledge the truth of God. Instead, they believed a lie about God. And Jesus steps on the scene and he's going to take back what's rightfully his. And these people actually have the audacity to get angry. They get angry at Jesus stepping on the scene to take back what is rightfully his. And so we read here. We read here in verse 18. And the nations were angry. And then next it said, and thy wrath is come. So we have a clash. We've got the anger of the world and the, and we've got the wrath of God. And it's actually a word play. If you look at it in Greek, they're, they're the exact same word. Anger and wrath there are the exact same word in the Greek. So you've got the, the, all the anger that the world can muster. 
against the wrath of God. And they're going to come to a clash. They're going to come to a head. And we're going to see over the next few chapters the war that the world is going to wage against God. They're going to put up an attempt through Satan, through Satan's influence, to try to take back what is rightfully Jesus, what Jesus is claiming for himself. And you're going to see this clash uh, take place. It's as if there's a contest, as I said before, between the anger of men and the wrath of God. Now, this anger that these men have, it's, I like what one writer, one writer said about it. it. said it's a deep-seated rage and resentment about Christ setting up his kingdom. They are angry about the fact that they are wrong. They're angry about the fact that Jesus does exist. They're angry about the fact that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. There's a deep-seated, deep-rooted anger that is in the heart of men that is going to play out over the next few chapters. And what we're going to see, this is kind of a setup, right, for what's going to come next. What we're going to see next is we're going to see Jesus' wrath be poured out and Jesus' wrath wins. In comparison, the anger of the world is weak. It's impotent. There's no strength there. There's no vigor there in comparison to Christ's anger, in comparison to Jesus' wrath. When Jesus pours out his wrath, his wrath is omnipotent. It's unstoppable. There's no force on earth that can stop the judgment of God when he starts pouring it out. And that's why you've heard preachers say before, and they're absolutely right. The judgment of God is slow, but it is sure. And you can count on it. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There are people today that think they're getting away with stuff. There are people today that think that God is, is, is holding a, a blind eye to them, that he's not paying attention to the things that they're getting away with. I promise you his judgment is slow, but his judgment is sure. And whether you go by death, if you're unrepentant, or whether you're alive at this time when Jesus sets up his kingdom, one day his judgment is going to be sure and it is going to be poured out and every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow and they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And that day is coming as surely as we stand here tonight. The next thing that we see is the righteous are rewarded. The righteous are rewarded. Time of the dead that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great. Jesus begins at this time to reward those and again, uh, people differ as to the chronological order of this particular, of what, of what John is seeing here. We believe that the rest of these uh, chapters 12 through 19 are all encompassed inside of this seventh trumpet. And so people differ as to whether or not this happens immediately or does this happen at the end of Armageddon. What we do know is that there's going to be a rewarding of the righteous. Now, some people look at this and they think, okay, well, the reward for the righteous is salvation. Not so. Not so. Jesus purchased our salvation. That's a free gift from God. By grace, we are saved through faith. 
We're born again, baptized in Jesus' name. That's, that's, not, that's not something we earn. We don't earn salvation. We obey his, his work. Uh, we obey his word. We're baptized in his name, filled with his spirit, live a holy life under the Lord. You don't earn salvation. But there are rewards according to the word of the Lord that he's going to hand out to his prophets and to his servants and that those that served him. You say, well, what, what rewards are we going to get? We're actually going to rule and reign with him. When that day comes, when he sets up his kingdom, there's going to be people that because of their work for the Lord, they're going to have larger kingdom. They're going to have more uh, more authority and power designated unto them by God, delegated unto them by God. Rewards. I believe that. And so what are we, what are we, what's the, what's the point of this right here? Because when you get to heaven, you're not, the only, the only remorse or regret that you're going to feel is going to be, I could have done more for Christ. That nothing matters but what is done for Christ. Only what's done for Christ will last. And there are people right now on this earth that people look at and they say, well, so-and-so is, is not very successful. They're not doing very much. They haven't done very much. You don't know the kind of reward that they have built up in heaven waiting for them because of the righteous work that they've done for the Lord here on earth. We look around and we only see with physical eyes. We see pastors that are pastoring, you know, thousands and mega churches and we think they're the ones that made it. And the little pastor, the one that's pastoring five people and it's trying to fight and keep the work of the Lord alive in a city, we think, well, you know, they've failed and they've messed up. But guess what? If that pastor of five has the truth and the pastor of 20,000 doesn't, that pastor of 20,000's reward is going to be an eternity in hell. And that pastor who faithfully worked and labored and scrounged for five people just standing on the word of God, just preaching the truth, he's got a reward waiting for him when Whenever he sees Jesus. So what should this scripture do? It should give us a perspective change. We are so focused on whether or not we're going to be lost or saved. Are we going to be saved? Where's the line at? What's the, what's the least I can do and, and just get by? And get, there's so much more out there than just getting saved. We've got a, we've got a thousand year reign that we're going to reign with Christ to look forward to. Whenever you decide, should I do something for God or not? I hope that you don't consider whether or not salvation is the issue. That's not the issue. What about this reward that's waiting for those that labor for Christ here? You say, well, if I do that, if I labor for Christ, I may miss out on this or that in this life. Who cares? In comparison to eternity, this life is but a vapor, Peter said. But if we can just hang in there, if we can just stay faithful, God's got rewards coming to those that stay faithful. He's rewarding the prophets. He's rewarding the saints. He's rewarding them that fear His name, both small and great. Hallelujah to that. That means that they may not be of great renown. They may be small in our sight, but if they feared his name, if they stayed faithful, if they labored for him, if they told somebody about the love of Jesus and about the plan of salvation, God's got a reward for them. Amen. And we shouldn't belittle that. We have got to set our sight so much higher. We ought not live on the level of, can I just be saved? 
You know who lived on that kind of level? And, and, and this is not even in my notes, but I just, feel, I, I just feel to go there. You look at the children of Israel. The children of Israel are promised the promised land. And they decided not to go in the promised land because of the ten spies. And the Bible says they just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years outside of the land of promise. But actually, if you read, it says that the Lord forgave them. So they were saved. They were forgiven, Brother Jeff. But they never reached their promise. They never reached the totality of what God wanted to give them. And there's so many Christians that they live at that level, right? The level of, can I be saved? Am I doing enough to be saved? That's the question they want to ask, Pastor. Can I do such and such and be saved? That's what they pray about. Lord, can I do this and be saved? Let me find the scripture to find the minimum I can get away with. That's like the children of Israel just standing on the other side of Jordan. When God wants us to move on, to go into the promised land and to conquer for him, he's got victories and battles for us to win. Amen. If we're going to build a church for the glory of God and the edification of his people, if that's going to happen, we're going to have people that are not just living on the, on the level of, can I be saved, but are interested in living on the level of, I want to reach for a reward. I want to qualify for a reward that God's going to hand out on that day. Amen. And I believe that we're going to do it as a church. We're going to get there. We look at uh, verse 19. I'm coming to a close quickly. So all we're going to cover tonight is the end of chapter 11 here. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hell. What do we see here? Simply this. Jesus is a promise keeper. He sets up his kingdom. He's getting ready to set up his kingdom. And we see into heaven, John gets a vision. And what does he see? He sees the temple being opened up. And I love this. In his temple, the ark of his testament. Everybody's wanting to know where the ark is. You know, Paul says that things on earth are mirror of a heavenly example. The temple in heaven, the ark that's in heaven. What is he showing us right here? as he's taking back the world for himself. He's a promise keeper. When they look at that, when the, because remember in Revelation 7, it says that there's going to be a remnant of Jews that are saved. All of faithful Israel are going to be saved during the tribulation. They get a glimpse of this, and they see inside of the temple, the Ark of His Testament. You know what has to come to mind? God is saying, I'm a promise keeper. I made covenant, I made promises, I made guarantees to my servant Abraham and to Moses and to the children of Israel. And I have kept my word and I have kept my promise. Here I am taking back the world for myself. Here I am pouring out vengeance upon the world. What is that showing us right here? It's He's a promise keeper. See, I don't understand people that say that they, they read the book of Revelation and there's no practical value. Are you kidding me? That's the most practical value that you can find right there, that Jesus is a promise keeper, that he hasn't forgotten the promises that he made to Abraham and that he made to Moses and to the children of Israel. He's going to keep his promises and his word. And if he's going to do it for them, he's going to do it for us as well. If God ever spoke a word, if he's ever made a promise, he's going to keep it. Amen. I'm coming to a close. 
tonight. I know I, I asked this last week, but I wanted to bring it up again, and I'm probably going to bring it up several times because that's kind of the theme as you close the this second half of the book of Revelation. We've got the question tonight, is Jesus king? Is Jesus king? I'm going to ask this question, like I said, frequently, because I want us to think about this. Is Jesus king? I put it on, I put it on social media today. I want people to think about it. We sing this, we sing that Jesus is king. We post Jesus is king. You know, we say it all the time. We put it in our, our bios on social media. Jesus is king. But the question is, are we living life? Like Jesus is king. And we're going to get even more practical, dig down even a little bit further. What, and I'm, I do, I'm doing the examination as the preacher tonight for myself as well. And I want you to examine your hearts. Where is, what, in what way is Jesus exercising his authority, his kingship, his lordship in your life? Because there are people that say Jesus is king, but he doesn't have control over what they watch. He doesn't have control over what they listen to, doesn't have control over what they wear or the places that they go. But they say Jesus is king. If you examine your life, in what areas can you point to? Can I point to and say, in this area of my life, Jesus is exercising his lordship, his kingship over my life. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, someone comes to you and says, why don't you go to this certain place or do this certain thing? Jesus is my king. He's exercising his authority in my life. That's why I don't go here, I don't go there. In what ways can we point to? What about our homes? Inside of our homes, with our families, where can we point to the authority of Jesus Christ in our homes? Is there any evidence, and this is, the, this is the big question, is there any evidence in your life, in my life, in our homes, that Jesus is king? That there's somebody ruling and reigning beside yourself? Does he have authority over your life? Because the truth is, and this is the truth, if Jesus has no authority to veto anything in your life, if he's not king in ways that are practical, I won't listen to this because Jesus doesn't like that. I won't go there because the Bible tells me to avoid certain places. I won't drink this or do that. Or You know, there's certain things where Jesus exercises his authority in my life. If we don't have those things, then Jesus is just king in title only, in name only. He's a paper king. The kingship of Jesus has got to be practical. And I'll say this, and I, and I want to be strong on this point. We're reading right here in Revelation 11. Jesus is going to come back to earth and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. If you want to be with the church and you want to come back with Jesus and all of his saints, then Jesus has got to be able to establish his kingdom in your heart now, in your life now. Not then, not that day. What's the practical value of reading Revelation 11? 
I know for a fact that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on this earth. I want him to set up his kingdom now in me. I want him to exercise his authority and his kingship in my life. I want people to be able to look at me and say, there's something different about him. I want him to be able to look at y'all, the world, be able to see our church and be able to see Jesus as the king of that church. He's the Lord of that people. And there are practical ways that that is true. I wonder if we could stand. So tonight, is Jesus king? Is Jesus king? And if so, what are the practical ways that that is true? How does it show up in your life and in my life? I wonder if tonight, I know we haven't had any music. Still believe in prayer. I wonder tonight if we could just find a place to pray for this next little bit. And let's do, and we're going to start doing this weekly. I want us to examine our hearts. And I want us to, because if this is, if this isn't the practical value of the book of Revelation, I don't know what is. I want us to examine our hearts and I want us to make sure that there are, there are ways in our life that Jesus is establishing his kingship, his authority in our life. His word right here. We ought to love every bit of it and seek to obey every bit of it and apply every bit of it where it needs to be applied. That's how Jesus establishes his authority, his kingship in our lives. So I wonder if you could do that right now. Could you find a place to pray? And let's pray for the next little bit in that direction. Jesus, would you establish your kingdom, your authority, your kingship in my life?